Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. China fired multiple missiles into waters near Taiwan as part of a four-day military exercise. This comes just one day after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. China's state television showed footage of multiple rounds of missiles being launched from ground positions. According to Beijing, the drills will last for at least the next three days until August 7th, covering six areas around Taiwan. Some of those areas overlap with parts of Taiwan's territorial waters. A total of 11 Dongfeng missiles landed in the waters northeast and southwest of the island as of 4 p.m. local time Thursday. That's according to Taiwan's defense ministry. Chinese state media said the exercises are the largest Beijing has ever conducted in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan says it has increased its combat readiness, activating its defense systems. And here at home, the White House has denounced Beijing for using Pelosi's visit to impose military coercion on Taiwan. We condemn these actions, which are irresponsible and at odds with our longstanding goal of maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and in the region. Senator Joni Ernst tweeted that communist China cannot dictate where we go or who we talk to saying that China's, quote, retaliatory measures need to be met with strong U.S. leadership to reinforce our rock-solid partnership with Taiwan. And today, following China's missile launches, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that the U.S. opposes any unilateral efforts to change the status quo regarding Taiwan, especially by force. And I want to emphasize, nothing has changed about our position. Uh, and I hope very much that uh, Beijing will not manufacture a crisis or seek a pretext to increase its aggressive military activity. The Secretary of State was speaking to Southeast Asian leaders at the ASEAN meeting in Cambodia. Blinken also reiterated that the U.S. remains committed to the One China policy. That policy is guided by commitments to the Taiwan Relations Act, three communiques and six assurances. These were agreements on Taiwan relations that were negotiated between the U.S. and China between the 1970s and early 80s. And to break this down for us and to get a closer look at the Chinese Communist Party's true intentions, we're happy to bring on the co-chair of the Congressional Taiwan Caucus, Congressman Steve Shabbat. Congressman Shabbat, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you. So having sat on the Taiwan caucus for so many years, does the U.S. have a strong and clear strategic response to this sort of conflict between mainland China and Taiwan? Well, I do wish that the administration uh, had been a, a bit more united. Uh, you know, you had the speaker and you had the president saying two different things about this trip. Irregardless, the, the fact is that it's the, uh, it's the PRC, uh, the Chinese Communist Party specifically, uh, who has been wrong here and has been provocative, not Nancy Pelosi, uh, not the president, uh, and not Taiwan. Um, and I think it's been a gross overreaction uh, by President Xi uh, to have his naval uh, ships as well as planes incursions into uh, Taiwan's uh, airspace, uh, cyber attacks, uh, which occurred against uh, Taiwan. These are what we call gray zone 
tactics, which are uh, kind of the space between war and peace. Uh, they can be very dangerous, however, uh, if, if, uh, if miscalculations are made. Um, and that's one reason that I think one thing we do need to change is uh, something called strategic ambiguity, which is our policy right now. Ambiguity meaning that uh, we keep China off balance a bit by they don't know if we would actually be there militarily or not with Taiwan if they acted. I prefer strategic clarity, where we make absolutely clear that the United States and our allies would stand with Taiwan uh, if they did act militarily. Now, speaking of showing unity and togetherness, this is clearly an issue that has both brought both parties together here in Washington, D.C., Democrats and Republicans. We saw a number of Republicans supporting Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Um, it's also uniting countries across the Western Hemisphere. So I want to ask uh, Congressman, what do you think is the global consequences of chi for China if they choose to continue escalating militarily or if they even choose to invade? Well, in some ways, the PRC, China, is acting like a rogue nation here. They're not acting like a responsible world leader. Um, theirs has been uh, unprovoked activities uh, which are damaging uh, to the peace. Um, these live-fire uh, missile uh, drills as well as uh, other types of weapons, um, and some of that has been directed in the, uh, towards Japan, for example. Uh, that's just completely uh, inappropriate. Yeah, well, each country has to make that decision on their own, and uh, none of us want war. Um, none of us want to have military hostilities. Uh, peace is what we all ought to be uh, looking for here. Uh, the United States, of course, has strong relations with a number of countries. In the Indo-Pacific, for example, there's something called the Quad, which is the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. And we've been working together very closely uh, for a number of years now, and we have a lot of other allies in the region. The one thing that the uh, that China has uh, been successful in doing is uniting much of the rest of the world, especially those country, countries in their region, to be united against uh, what China is doing. You know, and speaking of Xi miscalculating, uh, Xi Jinping, the communist, Chinese Communist Party leader, miscalculating here and, uni and actually leading to much of the Western Hemisphere uniting on this issue. Some would say that since so many of the countries have united in condemning China's actions here, the Chinese Communist Party is actually isolating themselves. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think they are isolating themselves. I think their reaction uh, here has been uh, completely uh, disproportionate uh, to what they object to. They object to an American member of Congress going to Taiwan. Many of us do that, and there are many times uh, the speaker has done that. It's a, it's a long tradition. She has every right uh, to go there. What is their purpose of escalating these tensions and flexing their military muscles towards Taiwan's now? What do you think the Chinese Communist Party's true intentions are here? Well, I think long term, they want to be the premier power uh, across the globe, not just in the Indo-Pacific region, which is what I think they want now, uh, but ultimately they want to be the most powerful uh, nation in, in the world. They want to replace the United States. Uh, and essentially, you would have uh, a country who stands for freedom and opportunity uh, replaced by an authoritarian uh, government who basically wants to suppress freedom, not only within its own country, uh, but throughout the world. So we can't let that happen. 
Uh, ultimately, I don't think they're going to be successful in that, but we need to stand together uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm. All right. Thank you so much, Congressman Steve Shabbat. Thank you very much. This week, 60% of voters showed up at the polls in Kansas in favor of keeping abortion access legal. To take a closer look at what these results reveal about our cultural norms, Christina Bennett with Live Action News joins us. All right, Christina, so I first want to talk with you about Kansas. So the outcome was pretty shocking for many people. It shows that even if some didn't show up to the polls intent on blocking abortion restrictions, there still wasn't enough people who took it as a priority to vote to allow the law to protect life. So I think this kind of shows that our society has become numb to what abortion actually is. That being said, do you think that this decades-long trend of legalizing abortion has led to our society to become numb of what the grim reality of abortion is? I definitely do think that people are numb and they're just not aware. And that's one of the reasons why through live action, we did this whole campaign called What is Abortion? Educating people as to the reality of what abortion is. I'm so thankful for the tens of thousands more people in Kansas who are pro-life who came out and voted yes on the value them both legislation. But unfortunately, there was so much misinformation regarding that legislation. And I think many people in Kansas were scared. And so it didn't go the way that we thought. But there are still people in Kansas who fight for life, care about the lives of the preborn, and they're going to continue fighting for their state. Mm. Now, I want to talk about your personal involvement here on the uh, pro-life uh, activism that you've been doing. So I saw a clip when you testified to Congress on this issue and you said something very interesting. You said that you see abortion as a genocide against black women. Could you please help our audience understand why you have this understanding? Yes, it's actually very interesting because a lot of people don't know that one of the first people to actually call abortion an act of black genocide was the Reverend Jesse Jackson, because in the 70s, in the early 80s, the Reverend Jesse Jackson was outspoken against abortion. But tragically, he ran for president as a Democrat, and then he changed his tune and he became pro-choice, and he's been pro-choice ever since. But the reason that he and many others referred to abortion as a form of black genocide is because the abortion industry, since its inception, has targeted communities of color specifically the black community. As far back as Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she had a Negro project where she hired black ministers to promote birth control. And she considered black people to be like weeds that she wanted to pull up out of the ground. She considered them to be unfit and didn't want them reproducing after their own kind, quote unquote. So the very early beginnings of Planned Parenthood were rooted in racism, eugenics, and population control, and we still see that today. Mm. Wow, I think that's a very interesting historical fact that not many, especially people from the younger generation, don't quite understand. I mean, you being a black woman, being pro-life and knowing these historical facts, how has that made an impression on you after you came to understand the root of abortion and how it's been popularized in our society? It opened my eyes in a way that I could never go back to ignorance. I grew up in the state of Connecticut, which is where I still reside. Very pro-abortion state. Never heard abortion talked about at home. 
only heard about, talked about in school in a positive sense as a woman's right. I knew nothing about the history of Planned Parenthood. I knew nothing about the high abortion rate in the black community or how we've been targeted. And when I began to research and I learned these things, it opened my eyes and I realized this is a industry that is preying off of my people and they are really targeting them for money and for, for gain. And they are causing a immense amount of suffering and devastation to our community while they're building their business. And so it was shocking for me. I watched the movie Ma'afa 21, which highlights in great detail the history of Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry and how they've targeted the Black community. And when I saw that, I knew that I had to continue to speak up to save lives. Mm. Now, Christina, I want to ask you what led you down that path to searching for this truth? Well, that's a great question. Everything changed for me in college. I was going to school. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with my life, but I ended up finding out that I was once scheduled to be aborted, that in 1980s at Mount Sinai Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, my mother went alone. She was pressured by my father. He coerced her into getting an abortion, and she was rejected by a church mentor. When she told her church mentor she was pregnant, the woman said, don't come back to this church. And she went to get an abortion, but moments before the procedure, a janitor saw her in the hospital. The janitor saw her crying and told her that God would give her the strength to have me. And by God's grace, she was able to tell the abortion doctor that she was leaving. Now, he got mad because he told her, don't leave. You've already paid for this. He didn't want to lose business. But she ran out of his office and she kept me. She also kept it a secret for over 20 years. But when I discovered that I was scheduled to die, that I was moments away from being dismembered and discarded as a piece of medical waste, when I learned that truth, I knew that my life was saved and I knew that I had to fight to save others. Wow, very beautiful story, and I'm so glad that you're have you have the courage to share it with other uh, people to help Thank them you. understand the truth of this. Thank you for your time, Christina. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.